Welcome to the 13th episode of the FBR Cast. My interview with author Joe Abercrombie. over Skype, yet nevertheless, you're actually here in my country, right? This is true. I am uh, in a hotel room in Sydney, even as we speak. What has brought you to Australia from your wonderful home in England? Well, I have been, uh, I've been brought over because I have a new book out, largely. Um, I was invited to uh, an event called GenreCon, which has been held out in Parramatta this last uh, weekend, which was a gathering of uh, all kinds of different writers, Romance writers, thriller writers, um, and fantasy and sci-fi writers too. Uh, gathering of writers and also uh, agents and publishers to kind of discuss the state of the industry, I suppose, and, and maybe learn some things about each other's genres and uh, compare and contrast our experiences. So I came out for that chiefly, but onto that, because I had a new book out, my publisher kind of uh, attached a whole set of uh, bookstop events and... Uh, I'll also be at two Supernovas, the the big kind of fan events. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a busy time here. I have. I've got 20 days, and I think in that time I've got one day mostly <laughs> off. But other than that, I'm kind of doing stuff the whole time. Oh, boy. Lots yeah. of busy. Now, your new book is Red Country. Um, yeah. Would you like to tell me a little bit about it for those who haven't actually um, stepped into your world yet? Yeah, I mean... Um, in essence, what I do is I try and write, I suppose you'd call it gritty fantasy, fantasy that's character-centred, unpredictable, and has a sort of visceral approach to violence and a, and a thick streak of humour in amongst the cynicism, I would hope. And this particular book is my attempt to kind of fuse that approach to fantasy with uh, the Western, really. So mm. uh, not um, a 19th century American setting by any means, but it has a kind of western feel it takes place on a a great stretch of um kind of unexplored frontier uh beyond which settlers are starting to move out into the wilderness and carve out a a new life possibly at the expense of the indigenous people um and so it features a lot of those western conventions it has uh people staring off across unimaginable distances usually with eyes narrowed (laughs) standoffs in windswept streets between men trying to escape their bloody pasts. All those things that we enjoy in Westerns are there to a degree. No six guns, sadly, and also no chaps. Unless oh. while you're reading it, that's up to you. Uh, I don't make that choice and I don't judge you. <laughs> well, it is a fantastic book. I finished it just the other day. Not that I was madly trying to get it read before this interview or anything <laughs> like that. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I'll um, get back to your writing in a little bit, but first... um. It, in your own words, would you give us a brief description of yourself? Well, I'm uh, tall, rakishly handsome, um, <laughs> obviously a phenomenal talent, and uh, no, I don't know. Um, I'm uh, in my late thirties. I have uh, three kids, married to three kids, live in Bath in the UK. Uh, for some time, I was a freelance TV editor, uh, and that job kind of gave me time off in between jobs and that meant that you know i had time to write and so i started writing 
sometime back in 2002, I think, maybe 2003, or maybe a bit earlier, 2001. And uh, my first book was published in 2006, and gradually over time they've become more successful to the point where I'm able to be a full-time writer, maybe for the last two, two, three years or so. Um, and yeah, this is my sixth book, which was just published well, a couple of weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, tall and rakishly handsome, that was true though. Oh, look, we've all seen the photos on Wikipedia and across the internet. It has to be true. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> now, you mentioned you were a freelance TV editor. Did you work on anything anyone's seen? Um, well, I, I would imagine some people would have seen some things. I don't know if they were things that will be immediate household names. I worked on a lot of uh, documentaries for um, Discovery Channel in the U- in the US and uh, the Learning Channel, as it was then. A lot of weather-related shows, so, you know, those those documentaries about uh, tornadoes yeah. and uh, hurricanes with the with the big voiceover kind of saying they had no idea that their <laughs> lives were about to be ripped apart by the past twins on Earth, that kind of thing. I didn't know Sean Connery did any over... Overdubs. No, no, apparently, uh, apparently he did. That's, that's, that's the news. Um, so I did a lot of documentaries of that kind, and then also I did a, a lot of live music and events. So I worked for the Brit Awards for a few years. All right. And also worked for Iron Maiden quite a lot, the, the heavy metal band. Wow. Uh, DVDs and documentary stuff for them. Uh, and uh, quite a few festivals as well. I still work every year for uh, the V Festival, which is a kind of... Uh, pop and rock concert mm. uh, a couple of day event that takes place near Chelmsford and that's just kind of a two day job for me I know all the people and uh, it's fun just to go up there and you know do a small job that I'm familiar with which I don't have overwhelming responsibility <laughs> yeah just walk away at the end of the thing and when I go to the bar at night the thing is transmitted it's done either way the job is over writing the job is never over the no. book goes out, there's more things to do you know there's always something to do so yeah, it's nice to still do that job for a couple of days a year. Um, you mentioned that uh, you were able to move into full-time writing. What was the um, the catalyst for that? Was it simply popularity, or were there other things that were able to take place that helped you move into being a full-time writer? Well, I, I was really lucky in the sense that uh, as a, as an editor, I was kind of quite modular and flexible in my in my work, which meant I didn't have to have that moment of kind of deciding, right, today I'm going to storm out of the office. <laughs> and I tell my boss I'm bigger than him now. I don't need him anymore. Um, I always had a bit of time to write in between jobs. And um, once I got a deal, that, I mean, that went on for two or three years before I'd written a book and then maybe another six months or so trying to get a deal. Um, and when I finally did get a deal, it was still a year or more before the first book came out. So it was a sort of long, drawn-out process and and the the, you know the advances i got paid for my first books were nowhere near enough to Mm. you know even really commit serious time to the writing let alone to give up work so i was still working pretty much as before uh for you know a good year or two after the first book came out uh and then gradually the books you know got steadily more successful with each book that was released really so they started eventually paying royalties uh and again no life-changing amounts particularly at that stage but uh I was able to then turn down a couple of jobs here or there that I didn't particularly want to do and, and commit to the writing a bit more. And gradually, just fortunately, quite naturally, the, the editing work sort of withered and got less. So, you know, one year I did 30 weeks, the next year I did 20. Um, yeah. And it just sort of naturally fell away as I turned things down. People stopped calling me and, you know, it got to a point where I was just working for a couple of clients doing three or four jobs a year and then a couple of jobs a year. And then, you know, it reached a point where I was earning enough out of the out of the writing to kind of, you know, comfortably stop 
the editing work and, and commit to writing pretty much full time. But then the nice thing about the editing is, you know, if the sales drop off, which is always a possibility you have to be aware of, then uh, I could kind of try and pick it back up and create some work again. So uh, I was pretty lucky from that standpoint. Yeah. Um, when did you realise in your life that you actually wanted to be a writer? Not, not, I still haven't in some ways. <laughs> I think uh, it was never, it was never kind of a dream I had from childhood that I've, you know, worked towards every day of my life by any means. I'm not, I'm not kind of uh, committed or decided enough in what I do for that to be the case. I, I kind of, I was always interested in writing and um, a, a very keen reader, very widely, you know, I read very widely. And um, so I was always interested in the idea of giving it a go. But uh, I think it wasn't until I was about 20 that I had a serious go at it well not even that serious I sort of did it as a, as a touch typing exercise as much as anything um, but it didn't come out interestingly enough for me to kind of pursue it at that stage and then sometime later when I was at, you know, about 27 28 I think I started trying again and uh, it came out very differently in a way it was the same scenes and the same characters but there was just an irony and a sense of humor to it that it hadn't had before yeah uh, straight away I was kind of interested in what was coming out and so it was really at that point that I started taking it seriously and, and wanting to continue to do it. I, I don't think I was really thinking about it as a career still. I was just thinking about it as something I wanted to do and, you know, maybe sometime in the future it would pay something. Um, yeah, so it was it was at that stage that I started taking it seriously and thinking it might be worth pursuing. Yeah. Um, have you been a reader your life? Like, it was the writing a simple extension of um, you enjoying reading? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'd be very surprised if you find many writers who aren't keen and readers and always have been really. Um, and I was certainly a very keen reader as a kid. My mum my was an English teacher and uh, an editor herself of, of um, educational stuff, um, and she always had me reading, you know, a really wide range of things from from very early on, really. And uh, so yeah, I've always always been a keen reader. Uh, a lot of fantasy in my teens, uh, and then. In my twenties, much more kind of varied stuff, all kinds of things really, and a lot of non-fiction as well. Uh, these days, I probably read a lot more non-fiction than than fiction, but I don't read nearly as much as as I used to, or nearly as much as I should probably these days, because I, I tend to commit a lot of that time that I used to spend reading is is you know in one way or another ploughed back into the writing. Yeah. Every every free moment you kind of think you know you're, you're, it's an obsessive thing writing it kind of has to be in a way if you're not obsessed with a book then you're generally not making a lot of progress yeah you're dabbling with it and feeling worried about how it's making no progress or you're just kind of in there the whole time 12 hours a day picking away and endlessly you know when you when you finally get into bed you suddenly go oh oh i know i've got an idea <laughs> back up again then you come back half an hour later and get into bed. Oh, hold on, I've got an idea. And, you know, it's very frustrating for everyone. It tends to be all or nothing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned that you were reading fantasy as a teen. Do you remember the favourite book that you had at that age? Um, yeah, well, funny enough, a, a, a very obscure um, and, and little-known uh, book uh, called Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I was obsessed with that as a kid and read it every year. Uh, the Hobbit probably before that. I mean, The Hobbit I, I'd read, I read kind of, well, very young, I think, and to the extent I can't really remember reading it, it just feels like it's always been a really key part of my, you know, creative life in a way. Mm. So certainly those books. And then later on, a lot of the kind of commercial fantasy that was very much in Tolkien's shadow that, you know, appeared in the 80s and 90s, uh, 
guys like David Eddings and uh, Dragonlance books. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that kind of stuff I, I, I churned through and um, I guess started to feel like fantasy was quite repetitive. I mean, I, I lacked any sort of connection with fandom or with more wider, better read people. It was really just a case of following my nose in the bookstore. So I wasn't really aware of, you know, writers like Fritz Lieber and, and Robert E. Howard and uh, Jack Vance, who were, had been doing much more morally ambiguous, strange, original work for years. Um, and so to me, it seemed that fantasy as a whole was, very, was, you know, kind of all these shiny, rather obvious, unambiguous, simple stories that tended to repeat themselves a great deal. And I kind of got out of the habit of reading it. There wasn't a big moment of, you know, I've outgrown this nonsense now. There's nothing like that, but I just... Uh, I, I moved away from my hometown and, and the sort of old role-playing group split up, sadly. And <laughs> went on to university and started reading other things, really. And then uh, I think in the 90s, uh, a friend of mine kind of said, you used to read fantasy, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I know about all that, you know. He said, I've got this book, Game of Thrones. I really <laughs> enjoy this. And I was like, well, you know, I've seen it all before, mate, to be honest. And, and the cover didn't really seem to promise anything different. But I thought, oh, I'll humour him. So I gave it a go. <laughs> and it was like a light going off, you know. Yeah. It really seemed like a lot of the things I felt had been missing in, in you know, the commercial fantasy of the 80s and 90s was really <clears throat> suddenly expressed so clearly crystallised there. But at the same time, it was still very recognisably commercial epic fantasy. You know, it had all those things you want from fantasy, but at the same time, it was it was gritty, it was unpredictable, it was uh, it was realistic, it had very vivid believable offbeat characters and so it was like wow you can do interesting things in fantasy you can do the sort of things i'd want to i'd want to read and i'd want to write and so i think that was a big definitely a big uh inspiration to me in uh writing something myself yeah since uh tolkien and martin have you found other authors that you've just really appreciated their work well certainly i mean the aforementioned lieber and and vance uh who I'd not been aware of really at all, because I'd read, I played a great deal of D and D and read a lot of D and D related things. Mm. When you read those books now, it's like, well, I mean, this is—it's so obvious that D and D emerges from these writers. Yeah. Because you, know? you know, the small group of selfish, slightly shady, morally ambiguous characters, kind of moving through a seedy, grimy world, is just so well suited to role playing. In a way, the big complicated stories of right and wrong that you get with, with Tolkien just aren't really suited to, to role playing. So, you know, they were very influential on, on D&D, but I hadn't read the fiction. And, uh, I can remember in, I think just after it was first published, um, there was a review which said, uh, you know, this is, it, it described me as Vancean. <laughs> and my editor, what's Vancean? <laughs> Jack Vance. And I was kind of Jack Vance. And he looked at me as though I'd asked who Elvis was. <laughs> the, they published the Masterwork series, Galance, my, my uh, publisher in the UK. And so, you know, he, he got Jack Vance down from the uh, shelf. And I was, I was just amazed by uh, the Dying Earth stories, Kugel uh, the Clever and all those stories, uh, with this utterly amoral, revolting protagonist. I just thought they were fantastic. And Fritz Lieber likewise. So, you know, I suppose reading those two guys brought home to me that there's always been this this although gritty as it were is very much a buzzword now and everyone says everything's so dark and and suddenly morally ambiguous and dangerous it's always been there there's always been that current uh in fantasy but it's kind of uh it wasn't commercial particularly and it's become a lot more so now so uh i guess i've become aware of old writers perhaps more than i have have done uh new writers I, i tend to be very wary of reading new fantasy for some reason i think partly 
my sense has always been if you want to be relatively original or at least, you know, to, to have your own stamp on things, you need to read outside your genre preferably. Um, there's nothing to be gained by kind of reading everything there is. Occasionally people will say, you know, how can you do something new if you don't know everything that's been done before? But that seems to me exactly upside down. You know, you do, you do something new by writing from the heart, if you like. So I haven't really read a huge number of new authors recently, I must admit. Yeah. Um, you So you read outside the genre. Do you have do you do a lot of uh, research reading for your work? Yeah, and I mean, pretty much everything I read tends to be in some way related. I mean, when I say research, I mean it quite quite broadly. So uh, with Red Country, I, I kind of just read a lot of non-fiction West and a lot of Westerns to, in the hope of just kind of steeping myself in the tone and the feel and the mood of those books. So, you know, I read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and uh, a lot of things that I'd read before I reread Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, uh, Elmore Leonard's Western stories, which are fantastic, and um, a whole host of Westerns and also a lot of non-fiction, as I say, a lot of films, uh, watched Deadwood again, which was <laughs> had that opportunity. Played Red Dead Redemption again, which again, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, you know? well... So I guess that's sort of you know what what I mean by research uh, is just trying to get as much of a a feel for these things as you possibly can. Did you always want to write a western styled book, or did it just come along that you thought, hey, western would work here? I suppose uh, you know the thing I always wanted to write was the trilogy, but then when I was getting towards the end of having written that, my editor said, "What are you doing next?" And I <laughs> realised I needed some more ideas. Uh, and the ideas for the trilogy had been building up for many years. Um, so I needed new ideas quickly. And I, I kind of thought about films because I wanted to write some individual books a bit tighter, a bit more focused. And so looking for more focused stories, I thought about, you know, what films do I, do I really love and what can I nick from those films that would you know, give my book some of the same flavour. And so I kind of thought of three films in, in essence, although, you know, the influences went a lot more widely in the end. One was Point Blank, the Lee Marvin kind of gangster film, 70s mm. gangster film, uh, which kind of became, by a process of alchemy, best served cold. So it's a sort of revenge thriller with Lee Marvin as this wronged gangster who then uh, avenges himself on the, the kind of uh, colleagues who uh, betrayed him. But I did it in Renaissance Italy instead of L.A. and turned him up to a woman because that seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Bridge Too Far was the next one. So it was a sort of uh, the story of a single battle uh, told from the point of view of lots of different combatants on both sides, with the aim of kind of telling individual stories and making some general points about war as well, hopefully. Uh, and then the third one was Unforgiven, the, the Western. Um, so it was always from that point of, of coming up with three new ideas for three books. That was one of the kind of concepts. Um, and, I mean, it, it takes on a whole range of different Western influences as well. So, But Unforgiven was kind of one, and, and particularly like that film and I think it, in a way it sums up the approach that I, I try to take to fantasy because Unforgiven is obviously a fantastic example of a western totally respectful and kind of uh, admiring of the of the form but at the same time it does a kind of it's something new with the form it does something that's that's modern and gritty and realistic and it also has a kind of comment to make about the form so you know that's kind of what I would aspire to do with uh, with fantasy now the um I've only managed to get around to reading the blade itself best served cold and now I just finished red country um, having f just read best served cold and red country though it feels to me as if there is something 
brewing in that world. Um, are you, ha- have you been writing these novels with an intention of just continuing the stories in this world? Uh, up to a point, I think. Um, there'll certainly be three more books in this world, probably a, a trilogy again, uh, that will pick up some of these threads. Whether I've had a kind of totally holistic arc in mind, I can honestly say that I have. I mean, I've had some ideas in the back of my mind. Mm. Um, I suppose it's it's a tricky one because you don't want to endlessly thrash something till it loses all interest for everyone involved. Um, but at the same time, you want to give people more of what they want. And um, it's never seemed to me that there's that much point in starting a new world for the sake of it, if you like. Yeah. So it seemed like the best idea to continue with the with the world that I had because uh, it's not as though my world is particularly a character in the story, if you like. I mean, the world isn't there for a certain, uh, to, to make a certain particular point. It serves as an analogue for our world. So I felt stick with the world that I had. Um, yeah, what was the question? I've lost my thread. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, the, 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 que- the question is, it seems to me as if there has um, been a lot of conflict building a, a between different uh, nations and groups of people, and it looks like it might come to a head at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it will, but that, but then again, I also think um, fantasy stories often have this kind of very decided start with a, a sort of a set of characters who are clean slates, farm boys with no past, <laughs> and then yeah. they go on a journey where they learn something and improve and grow, and then they face a terrible enemy and triumph, and a new epoch begins after this huge world-spanning conflict is resolved. And I don't know, the real world isn't much like that in many ways. I mean, we're constantly spinning narratives in which the real world is like that, but it isn't. So, you know, if you look at the war in Afghanistan and you, you end the story where, with George Bush declaring victory on his, on his aircraft carrier, you kind of miss the point. And uh, there's always another story told afterwards. There's always the seeds of, uh, you know, the next conflict are always sown in the resolution of the one before. So I suppose I'm not that interested in final ends because things never do really finally end. I mean, some stories end, some characters achieve a resolution of one kind or another. But I'm quite keen on slightly ragged endings and also looking a little bit past the end to what happens next, if you like. Um, So whether the kind of overarching conflict would ever be totally resolved, I don't know. I wouldn't hold your breath for that. (laughs) Now, I think I agree with you, and I think think Robert Kirkman would probably agree with you well as well. The author of The Walking Dead, his entire premise for The Walking Dead was what happened after the zombie outbreak movie. And, yeah. you know, he's a hundred over 100 issues into that comic and th- th- season three of the hit TV show. So I think it's yeah. obviously something that uh, people are enjoying as well is, um, like you said, you, you want to give them what you want, what they want. And I think a lot, a lot, a lot of people are enjoying this um, tale of... of su- like what comes after the epics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a diff- it's always a difficult balance giving people what they want because people don't always actually want what they say they want. If you know what I mean, no. people usually want something slightly other. They they kind of want the same experience they had before, but then the exact same experience never gives them the same buzz. They want something slightly new, something slightly different, and you've got to kind of judge what that's what's going to scratch the the itch, if you like. Um, and you can't get bored yourself either. So you've got to try and, you know, keep yourself interested and uh, write what you want to write and hope that you'll you'll bring people with you. And I think not worry too much when someone says, when are you going to bring this character back? When are you going to do more with this? Because uh, 
people will always want something until suddenly they don't want it anymore. And uh, the aim, I think, is to is to reach the point where they still want it and then stop, rather than to reach the point where you're both totally bored of it and mm. no one wants you to carry on. So uh, I would never be too slavish about trying to give people what they want. Um, I think I'd have to agree with you on that. Having read Best Served Cold and realised, well, for, at least from my own perspective, that there was such um, dark and uh, greedy and selfish characters throughout the whole book, I, I can't imagine I would have said, yeah, that's what I want to read. But having finished, <laughs> but having finished that book, I was nevertheless uh, fully invested in the world, even if it was just like, I hate you all. I hate Joe Abercrombie. I hate his characters. It's, ah, they're all so dirty. And like, what was the inspiration behind, like, you, you mentioned Point Blank. Yeah. But the characters, from my perspective, and I, I, I don't want to speak for every reader out there, but the characters were so unrelatable. And I can't help thinking that maybe um, what I thought I want, wanted was relatable characters, but you're telling me that maybe I didn't actually want relatable characters. I wanted someone I could not relate to, maybe. Well, I think that book particularly, I kind of I, I, I pushed it as far as, as it would go, maybe further than it would go for a lot of people. I think that book's kind of one of my most uh, divisive ones. Um, a lot of people really don't like it that much, and quite a lot of people, it's their favourite one of mine. So... I think I was trying to push it as far as I could with the with the kind of unlikability of the protagonists. Uh, and with other books, I haven't gone quite so far. I guess it's all just a question of taste. You know, some people will like it, some find it a bit strong medicine, some really just can't get into it at all. I felt that there was a, um, a real lack of redeeming qualities in the characters yeah. right up until about the last few chapters. Yeah. Um, was there a, like... During your editing process, did you have to go through and find, oh, that's too redeeming, I need to get rid of that? Or did the characters just come out fully formed like that? Uh, well, there was certainly, the, the idea was for kind of two um, complementary arcs, if you like, of Shivers and Monza. So, you know, the idea was that Shivers would, would start as this optimistic guy and become gradually more and more cynical and messed up and, and end up pretty pretty nasty. Um Whereas with Monza, you'd start with someone who seemed pretty nasty and, and unredeemable, and then you'd kind of learn more about how she came to be this way and perhaps how some of it wasn't quite the way you thought it was, and hopefully readers would get to feel more uh, empathy with her over time. Maybe not to feel that they you know, found her wonderful and pleasant, but certainly a bit better than they'd started with. So that was always the central plan, if you like. Um, I think it's tougher to start with someone very unsympathetic and then to make them more sympathetic uh, than it is to start with someone sympathetic and make them less so, which is kind of what I'd done in the, the previous trilogy, and I think probably a bit more successfully. Uh, but all these experiments kind of go towards teaching us something about how readers react to, to things that you do and what's the, the most effective way to, to do things. But I don't know, I mean, I, I often people often say that the, the books are really dark and cynical and, and unremittingly unpleasant, and... I kind of, I don't see it that way so much myself. I see there as being glimpses of light. Maybe not as much as people would like that. It was, um, it was definitely an interesting reading experience. Um, the, the characters that we were, uh, led to be, uh, most attached to, at least from a, a stereotypical standard by Monza and, and, and Shivers, um, definitely had that real dark, gritty, um, lack of redeeming quality aspect to them even though as you as you said that there was a a growth uh negatively for shivers and positively for monza 
Mm. One of the really interesting um, pairings was um, Koska and Friendly, however, um, yeah. in, that, in that book. Um, you've got one homicidal maniac and and then Koska for how, how, however you want to describe him and and they were they so weirdly enough were almost the the comedy relief and the um the lighter aspects of that book um how, how did you come about writing Koska and Friendly oh yeah difficult one I mean um I suppose uh a lot of these things just kind of happen as you as you write them and as you you know they're just what makes sense at the time um I guess for friendly, the idea was obviously for a guy who's uh, obsessed with numbers and has relatively limited uh, affect, you know, not a lot of emotional response. Yeah. So he's kind of, uh, I suppose, uh, some way along on the autistic scale, I guess you'd say. Yeah, um, I guess I was always thinking that, um, you know, people who have various psychological dysfunctions of one kind or another that we'd recognise now wouldn't be recognised at all in, in you know, uh, a world of that kind. And so they'd just have to bumble through life the sort of best they could, really. Mm. And so I suppose I was interested in, in making a character who uh, just had a lot of trouble socialising uh, and was much happier in prison than outside of it um, because of the, you know, the routines and the simplicity of prison life. And that was kind of just how it developed, really. I mean, with Koska then, he'd been in the... He'd been in the trilogy as well, so uh, that was kind of taking a, a secondary character and trying to flesh him out and uh, look at the world through his eyes, if you if you like. Yeah. Uh, and again, that, that was kind of just he was just the way things developed, and I guess they just seemed like a a nice pairing as time went on. They just seemed to complement each other quite well. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that was how that developed. Now you brought them both into Red Country, um, along with uh, Shivers um, and. For me, it was really quite interesting because I actually felt that um, Koska took a darker tone. He 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 got slightly um, more darker and um, uh, nasty as Red Country yeah. went on, whereas Shivers seemed to have done the opposite thing. So it's almost it felt to me as if what you'd done with Monza and Shivers uh, replayed itself again in Red Country a little bit, just the reverse. Was there intention behind that? Well, certainly there was intention in making Costco kind of taking this darker turn, yeah, um, as he's got older and uh, more self-obsessed, I suppose. Mm. Um, and yeah, with Shivers, I mean, Shivers is also in the in the intervening book, The Heroes, so he's really not not nice in that book. And then in this one, it felt like the right time to maybe do something again slightly different with him. Yeah. So uh, I suppose I always want to I always want there to be some level of surprise in the characters if there can be. I mean, not one that seems to come out of nowhere, but. Uh, for people who followed the books through, hopefully, you know, they can sort of see why the characters behave as they do. But at the same time, it's it's a surprising turn in one way or another. I mean, I like things that run predictable. I've always really enjoyed books that have good twists, that have good surprises. So I do try to, yeah, make things surprising if I can. Lamb in Red Country was an interesting character because he started out in this very cowardly manner, uh, appeared to grow but then the last thing we see is is very similar to how we he started out, and I I felt that was a really uh it it was a blow to the reader because um it once again left it on a bit of an unhappy note. Um, what was your intention with Lamb through Red Country? I suppose uh, I've always been interested in kind of violent people, you know that um, fantasy is full of men of violence of one kind or another of, of warriors and. Uh, and kings and knights of one sort or another, and um, generally they can be decent guys once the armor's off, 
and the swords are sheathed, you know, but they can hack through an army of demon spawn and, and still go home and be sensitive lovers at the end of the day. <laughs> and I, my feeling was that, you know, that's rarely the case with people who've, uh, who are very well adapted to killing other people with edged weapons. Uh, my feeling was that, you know, those sort of guys are not going to be all that good in peacetime. They might be quite a liability to themselves and others in one way or another. And there's always a cost, of, you know, to, to being violent, just as there is, you know, to the victim, there's a cost to the perpetrator. So I, I guess with Lam, I was trying to, you know, he's a returning character from the trilogy, and I was trying to always with that character look at the sort of, um, at the mismatch between people's kind of self-image and their behaviour, if you like, and sort of see, try and try and imagine how someone who's done very violent, unpleasant things might see themselves, how they try and rationalise those things. Uh, and in Red Country, yeah, I suppose he's a guy who who's tried to escape his violent past, but then is is drawn back in and also, in a way, wants to be drawn back in because he is at his most alive and most effective when he's very violent. Uh, and there's a kind of addiction there to the violence and to the the importance that you have when you are you are fearsome, and so it's something you can never really get away from, however hard he might try. Yeah, I want to take a step away from um the the specific books and ha- have a look at overall. And um in the um communication we had before this interview, I asked you a question. Um, I'd like to ask it again. I'd like you to tell me about your editing process, what it looks like. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the editing's the bit I really enjoy, I guess. Well, editing in the sense of the reviewing that I do, rather than necessarily the working with an editor, although that too. Um, I kind of, I struggle through a first draft generally, and then oftentimes, uh, when I reach the end of a book, I, I finally at that stage have a, have a, a firm idea of where I'm going and what the characters need to be. So then it's a case of going back to the start and really, uh, going over it and imposing, uh, my kind of final vision for it onto onto the early parts of the book and then typically I'll end up then with a second draft that is kind of hopefully coherent all the way through then it's a case of kind of going over it several times with a an eye on a different aspect of it each time so I'll pass through it once for the voices of the central characters trying to get them as kind of rich and vivid as they can and then another pass for the setting trying to get that as uh as, as interesting and, and vivid as I can do. There may be another pass for the minor characters looking at their dialogue, uh, and then a pass where I'm looking in detail at the language and the sort of rhythm of the language and trying to get things as, as good as I can do. So a sort of whole set of passes through, and another kind of responding to my editor's comments often. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, quite a long-winded and, and kind of complicated process, but um, I think it's in the revision that you really, you know, make a book good, certainly as good as you can do. Uh the first draft isn't always that great, and uh, it's through the editing that you get that feeling of the feeling of effortlessness. I suppose, in a way, is created by a lot of effort. If that makes sense. Yes, yeah. From the completion of the first draft through to submitting the final draft to uh, to to your editor, how long do you think it would normally take you? Uh, from finishing the first draft, well, probably usually my editor's kind of got it as as it's gone through. So uh, each part that I finish. I'll discuss with her as it's finished. So she's usually got quite a good idea how things are going and has made some more general comments already. Uh, so a lot of the big stuff will kind of get absorbed into that first big pass-through. And that first pass-through maybe takes a month or two. Uh, and then the rest of the revising maybe another three, so maybe it's five or six months in the editing maybe. Yeah. Sort of thing. And, and maybe a year in the drafting and five or six months in the editing, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, now, I asked you a question in... Um 
when we were communicating, I asked you, um, who is your favorite character in the series and why? Um, and your, and your answer intrigued me. I just want to read it out here. Um, my least favorites are the ones I'm writing now. My favorites are the ones I finished. Um, what on earth do you mean? I guess I mean that, uh, while you're writing, there's always these challenges about how am I going to make this character work? How am I going to make them funny? How am I going to make them effective? How am I going to make them convincingly do the things I need them to do? Um, so you're always struggling with your book when you're writing it. And uh, because the characters are very central for me and the voices of the characters and getting that, that right is, is kind of key, um, that tends to be the thing I really worry about. Is this character working or not? Sometimes they work right from the start and other times they, they really don't and become quite worry. So I guess I mean that, you know, once I've finished and I look back, I think, phew, that character works, I can I can relax. Whereas when I'm writing them, I'm always... You know, concerned that they're not going to work. Mm. That makes that makes more sense now that I've got some explanation behind that. <laughs> um, just a couple, just a couple of last questions um, that I like to just ask writers. Um, sh- hopefully, shine a little bit of light into the process. Cool. Uh, where do you um, personally like to write? Yeah, I mean, in in varied places. I think is is the the best answer I can give to that. I mean, I, I have a room at home. We've we've kind of. Uh, did a big building project on a, on a house that was in quite a bit bad state. Um, so we've kind of built a house as we want it, and that included building a you know room for me to work in. So I have a great room to work in that's kind of off to one side of the house and um, uh, have, a nice, have a good desk and good chair and all those things. But actually, I do often enjoy working on the train, weirdly, because uh, there's something to it where you're away from the world for a couple of hours um, and you can just you know sit and work without any sort of distractions. Um, so I do enjoy that, and I enjoy often just working on the park bench and things things like this, you know, reading over stuff. A change yeah. of scene can often give you somehow a new look at things. I'll do weird stuff, like I'll, I'll make the text really big sometimes. Yeah. Uh, when I'm going through a kind of uh, a last draft often and looking at the detail of language, I'll make the text huge. And apart from the fact that typing when the text is huge makes you feel very powerful and like <laughs> I also have the advantage that... Uh, Somehow it just gives a different feel to it. It helps to kind of look in more detail. So I think just mixing stuff up often it just keeps you interested and, and gives a different feel to, to how you're working. So it's just nice to have that variety in there, really. Now, um, for me here in Australia, if I was to um, sit down on a train and write for any length of time, I'd be fairly certain I'd end up losing my laptop to some 13-year-old punk who decided <laughs> that school just, well, just wasn't on the cards for today. <laughs> right. Are train rides different over in England? Like, are we talking general commuter, or what sort of train rides are you talking about when you say you like riding on a train? Well, I mean, I suppose um, the train ride I take most often is the one from Bath up to London. But then I, I tend to take that sort of journey. I mean, I don't tend to be travelling at commuter time, so the trains are often quite empty, um, or there's certainly room around. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I suppose they must be a little bit different in that case, because I, I don't think I'd worry too much about that. Yeah, I've been disturbed by teenagers. I mean, sometimes you get, you get disturbed by people who are on there, but... Uh, I find it quite easy to zone those sort of things out. Someone's got a noisy stereo and so on. It's irritating. But then once I'm kind of working and uh, got my head in it, it, I don't tend to be easily distracted. It it may simply be that I'm overly pissed off at 13-year-olds who simply aren't at school ever. I, I suspect there is a there, there's a story behind this. There could be, but that's not what this podcast is for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to finish with just letting you... Uh, Give, give a bit of a plug to Red Country and um, anything that's coming up next for you. Well, I mean, uh, 
funnily enough, I, I actually don't have anything, you know, Im- imminently on the cards for the first time. Usually with with other books, or always with other books, I've been well underway with the next project when it's published. But uh, gradually over time, my head start has kind of reduced to the point where this time I haven't really started the next thing. So uh, you'll have to be happy with me plugging Red Country, which is, of course, I would say the finest, well, without any doubt, the finest uh, combination of fantasy and western published by me this year. <laughs> it's uh, an epic sweep of love and war, a roller coaster ride of action and adventure with uh, all the thrills, laughs and excitement you or anyone else could ask for. I have to vouch for that. It was a fantastic read. I really enjoyed the characters and there was a very, there was very much a sense of, I hope to see some of these characters again and I think I'll never see some of these characters again. Well, that's good. I mean, that, that's, that's what, what I'd hope for, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad, really glad you enjoyed it. It was, um, as you, you said, it, it, it was tight and it was wrapped up and there might be some frayed edges that pop up again later, but the, I think the main characters I really, walked away feeling very satisfied with what happened to them, and um, even if it was a little bit sad through times. Yeah, well, I don't like anything to be too simple, you know. Life no. is a bit, isn't it? Especially yes. a psychotic killer. <laughs> now, um, you don't have Twitter. Do you have Facebook? Do you have anything where people can follow the stuff that you do? Oh, yeah, well, I have a blog. Um, my website is uh, com. And I have a blog on there where, where I'm, I'm kind of posting two or three days a week. I've been for God, about six or seven years now. Oh wow! And um, so you know they, they can they can follow things on there. I'm also on Facebook, and and the Facebook largely just syndicates the kind of posts off my blog. I don't, I don't have a lot of involvement with Facebook. I should probably have more. And I haven't done Twitter just because it seems like you know that extra step that will mean I'll never do any writing at all. <laughs> so, uh, my blog is the best place to find me. Sounds good. Well, look. Red Country is out in stores. I, I can only imagine it's everywhere. If Australia's got it, it's got to be everywhere else. Yeah. Um, well, not quite in the, in the US yet, actually. I think in the US it's out on the 11th of November, so in a week. All right. Well, Yanks, hopefully it will be out by the time this gets published. Thank you, Joe, very much for joining us. It was absolutely, absolutely lovely to talk to you. No, absolutely. Pleasure. For show notes and links to the music we used by Bart Stoop, please head on over to fantasybookreview.co.uk. You can follow the show on Twitter at FanBooRev and at Facebook at FantasyBookReview. And you can follow Josh and Ryan on Twitter at JoshSL and RyanL1986. You can, and we hope you will, email the show at blog at fantasybookreview.co.uk. Thank you.